trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to the show as we revel in wrong think. And I've got my favorite wrong thinker, Gary Welsh, joining me today. Hello, Gary. And you are my favorite wrong thinker, Brian. I, I, I actually, you're the like you would. I guess you would be the leaders <laughs> of the wrong thinking society. You know, that's the beauty. But, wrong think has no leader. <laughs> you, you have. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You got to chart your own course. That's what makes you a wrong thinker. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that because that is the whole philosophy of wrong thinking is that you just think for yourself, and who cares what everyone else thinks? Yeah, I mean, not that you know you're running roughshod over anybody, but. Man, I, Gary, I've spent the last, I'm going to say the last 30 years paying pretty close attention to what's going on, as in, you know, trying to be aware, trying to be to the point where I could at least discuss most current events intelligibly. And I have never seen such a, a, a concentrated effort to deceive and to keep people in the dark through manipulation of data, most often omitting, you know, key facts to, ver- to various stories and sometimes just shading the facts to where, oh, this is the conclusion you're supposed to come to, you know, on the part of the media. It's, it's astonishing. I've often had conversations about the steady progression of what I call socialist thinking, which is. You know, we, we just push it a little bit, then we push it a little bit higher, then we push it a little bit harder. And we are getting into that phase now where they've done the propaganda and the influence and everything, where they're feeling very comfortable about forcing the issue, whether that's through violence, intimidation, cancel culture, media, social pressures. They are really getting now to the point where we're not trying to persuade you into our thinking you are now required to do our thinking, think the same way we do. Oh, and it's it's getting intense. And so when we talk about, you know, people come and let's let's revel in wrong think. It's not so much that we're just trying to be defiant for the sake of being defiant, but um, we have a commitment to reality. We have a commitment to truth that we're not going to have intimidated out of us. And, of course, that's a lot easier to do when you have camaraderie, when you can see other people are doing the same thing. You know, courage just needs uh, an example, and other people will start to catch it as they see people stand up. So we invite you, come find courage, come find camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers, but uh, just never doubt for a minute. There is a battle for your mind. It's as real as can be. And we're going to do what we can to give you hopefully good information, things to consider. But what you do with that information, that's on you. That said, where do we begin today, Gary? I know you you are very good at keeping your finger on the pulse. Uh, you had mentioned a couple of Fox News polls that grabbed your attention. What were those polls about? So the one that I think really that we should start with because... Of uh, the Andrew Brown shooting that that just occurred um, and is on the news now, and we all we've seen the riots already start in in behalf of that. Is the media perception that they are trying to tell you is is was what's going on, and what Americans are pulling at is 
totally different. So the media would have you think that every everybody's really up against the cops, that they hate the police, that they see them as the murderers, that they're trying to portray them. And yet Fox News did a poll where it was a two to one ratio, 62 percent versus 33 percent show that most Americans, obviously a a great majority of Americans, are opposed to reducing our police forces. And that just basically what that is saying is, hey, we don't have any problems with the police. We don't have any problems thinking that if if everyone said, oh, our police are out there murdering everybody and they're just shooting everyone at will and whatnot, there would be a great call to reduce the police force. But the polls are not showing that. And yet when you look on the media side of things, what are they saying is that this is what the Americans want? Yeah, it's to to me. There's, there is a middle ground here, but it's not, uh, you know, rioting versus, you know, police can kill whoever they want with impunity. Um, I, I see some concerns with how the police are being used by the system. I, I see the blurring between the line of a peace officer and a warrior cop who is out there, you know, to essentially um, act like a like a troop in, a, in an occupying force. But. I don't know how we correct the problems. And there are some legit problems where I think everything becomes a police matter. In other words, laws are passed that send the police into situations where they never should have been in the first place. It really didn't require police intervention. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Um, There was an arrest made in St. George last week, and it was a guy who was I'm trying to remember what he was accused of doing. Um, It was some kind of little petty thing like he was throwing rocks or something. I can't remember. He anyway. It was it was a guy who was accused of some very, very minor offense, but someone expressed concern. Well, you know, he might be violent. They rolled the SWAT team. They sent the SWAT team in. And the justification is, well, this is safer for everybody. And I beg to differ. I think that uh, it it doesn't, in fact, make us safer. It actually kind of desensitizes us to government being overreactive. And I think that's a problem that really does need to be addressed. On the other hand. When people are behaving in a uh, murderously aggressive fashion, and and I don't know the I don't remember the name of the the girl in in Ohio, uh, the thirteen year old who was trying to stab another girl and was shot to death by a police officer who was right there, uh, trying to stop her. Um, you know the the presumption is well that was uh, that was gratuitous and the police never had a you know they had no right to step in in there and intervene. Somewhere between those two extremes, I think, is is the happy ground where the police can actually protect and serve and keep the peace with the necessary force and tools to do so. But they don't become an occupying army. And, you know, I really don't want to see them under federal control. That's my big concern is all the protests that are erupting, I think, are setting the stage for uh the, the president, among others, to step in and say, well, you know, what we need to do then is just take your local departments under our wing and make sure they're all being regulated by by our federal regulators. And that sounds very dangerous to me. And that would be required if we had an out of control police force. They they could be very much justify that saying, well, look, obviously your cities and local institutions and your local governments are not able to police the police, per se. And therefore, we have to come in so that we can police them and make sure that they are not executing citizens. And, and it's just the, the hyperbole of that statement and the, and the hyperbole of that thought and that, oh, we have to assume that police officers are going around executing citizens for no good reasons other than race 
And that's all there is to it, that they just walk around shooting black people because they like to and they want to. You know, you're right. They're they're trying to set something up so that they're saying we need to control this. Whereas the reality is, yeah, there is some reformation of the police forces we need to do. But I think that reformation comes in what is your job and how are you doing things? What is your really your role in this? We have turned our police force into revenue collectors. It makes up a significant part of every city's budget of the revenues collected by police force. We have turned them into um, going after everybody for every situation. And then we, we have the situation where we have neighborhoods that are predominantly violent so that the police go in there with an attitude of, I'm going to get shot today. And I'm I'm got to do everything in my power not to make sure that happens. Yeah, it's it's a tough job, and and the vast majority of police I believe are out there for the right reasons. I see a lot of them leaving law enforcement though because they see their role is changing, or at least the way that they are are being utilized to, to where they're becoming um, very well trained and expensive babysitters for society, as opposed to actually going after criminals who've harmed another person or their property. Um, less laws would be a really good start. I mean, there's there's no act that a person can do that would harm another person that hasn't already been addressed in law. But for some reason, we have legislators that think, well, you know, if we just if if one law is good, another one. You know, the the guy who uh, engaged in a shooting where was it in Indiana? You know, there's been a lot of talk about well, you know, red flag laws uh, should have prevented him from from doing that shooting, but they didn't, and yet nobody makes the connection that. Those gun control laws don't stop people intent on doing harm. But what's the remedy they suggest? Well, then we just need more of them. I, I don't know. I don't know how you start to, to break through and, and make sense to people in that situation. Well, when we come back from the break, let's talk about that. I want to talk about how police officers use these minimalist type of laws to catch criminals. So you're OK. You're, you're going to. Um, you're going to take the positive side of uh, what would what, what would it be called the uh, like the broken windows theory that uh, Rudy Giuliani used when I think they, they they cracked down on jaywalking, spitting on the sidewalk to head off the bigger crimes. Okay, sounds like a good discussion. We'll be back right after this. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Gary Welch is my guest, and we are talking about one of the many issues going on now, but it's uh, police reform. Gary, you said you could make a case that those little laws, those piddly little laws, sometimes, in fact, do help police solve crimes. So I was um, I worked very closely with the police a long time ago, uh, mostly on a volunteer level. But I got very involved with the things that they do. And one of the things that they told me was when it comes to chasing criminals or likely suspects, so they know someone's dealing drugs, but they've never been able to catch them at it or 
they see them in the right place at the right time and things happen. So they go, okay, we think that, you know, Joe Jones there, he is a possible drug dealer, but they don't have enough for a warrant. It's very difficult to get a warrant or it's very time consuming to get a warrant to go after him. Or maybe they just were, are feeling about, you know, they're, they're very cautious because of lawsuits. You know, everybody's lawsuit crazy now. And if you arrest somebody and you don't have any, any evidence or anything like that, you get sued. So they're very conscious of that. So they actually like these little teeny tiny laws. You didn't turn your blinker on. You you crossed the lane. You looked at the window funny, whatever it is, as long as it's legally on the books, they like those laws. And that's what you're actually seeing in all of these cases. The number one thing that you see over and over again is the individual got pulled over or was stopped for something little jaywalking, running a red light, not turning on a signal. They like those things because that gives them then the excuse to pull you over to start this basically search you or, you know, see what's going on. And then that can lead to, well, we found drugs on him and we found all those other things. They talk a lot about that, that they use that a lot of, of arrests. I'll give you one good example of what they told me about when I was working with them. And that was, they knew that there was a drug delivery in a car that somebody had a whole bunch of drugs in their car and that they were going down the freeway was being delivered from one place to another, but they didn't want to rat out their informant. The informant had told them, Hey, this car just took off and it has a bunch of drugs in it. So what they did is basically tailed the car and they waited for that individual to make a mistake. In this case, he made a lane change without turning on his signal. That gave them the excuse. Oh, we're going to pull him over. And what they was, what the whole story then was, well, we pulled him over because he made an illegal lane change and he didn't use his signal. And then once we had him pulled over, we, we, you know, we alerted on the drugs and popped the trunk. And lo and behold, hey, we just caught our, our drug dealer. That's how they use those laws. That sounds a lot like fishing season, you know, being opened. And I look, I'm not I don't have a problem with them catching people who are actually doing harm um, and, and taking them off the streets. If it makes the community safer, great. But I have a big problem with those those so-called pretext stops. Well, your license plate light wasn't working or something like that, only because. It's it's not a slam dunk. We're going to get something on this person. Or if, if they have that attitude, then they, they may be tempted to manufacture something in order to get something. It's to me, it takes them away from more tangible examples of people doing harm and, and unfortunately strains the innocent through the same net that uh, that they're using to try to catch the guilty. And I, I get not everybody's going to agree with that. And I don't, I don't expect them to. I would rather err on the side of caution of not letting police interfere in people's lives unless there's a very good reason to do so, like probable cause that they are involved in a crime as opposed to, well, you didn't signal for two seconds and then move over. Um, that to me just seems to invite interactions that that are sometimes unnecessary and often dangerous for the officer. And I would agree with you. I didn't bring it up as a justification of what they were doing, but simply telling you the tactics like you will get resistance from police officers if you started a reform movement within the policing profession of saying, hey, let's get you out of revenue generation. Let's get you out of traffic 
control that that's really not your purpose and put you more into a crime prevention role, which is really what you should be doing. You get a lot of resistance of that because they like those little laws, like I said, to make, make it easy for them rather than do the necessary things of getting a warrant, finding evidence and all those other things that they need to do. So there would be some resistance within the police community for trying to make those reforms, but they're absolutely necessary that we make those kinds of reforms. We've got to get them out of the babysitting. Um, we're in your face all the time. Most people who interact with a police officer interact with them on a negative context. They're either giving us a ticket or pulling us over or something like that. That should not be the norm of, of how we interact with our police. It should be actually that 95% of us never interact with the police. Here, here. We, we just go through our lives without having nothing to do with them. It's it's very telling. I have friends who are police officers who have told me when they're driving in some place other than the jurisdiction where they work, and a police officer pulls in behind them, they get nervous. I mean, they, the the pucker factor begins for them because they don't know for sure who they're dealing with. And you know, it varies from agency to agency. Some agencies are told you go out there and you find a reason to write those tickets. Um, and I know they're not supposed to have quotas, but uh, again, you talk to officers in certain uh, departments and they'll tell you, yes, we were told you have to write this many tickets per day or you're going to be under scrutiny as to are you really doing your job, which means they had incentive to go look for reasons to hook people up. And I think that's destructive in the sense that um, if you have to look for a reason, that's going to break down the trust that you need to do your job within the community. And police forces are government institutions. Never forget that with a right. government mentality. So if you want to get promoted, if you want to have better pay, more pay and, and things like that, what do you have to do? You have to grow. So the only way to grow is to create reasons for growth. And then tickets are basically the, the fastest way to do that. Not only do you create growth by work, but you create growth by revenues. So we're generating so much revenues for the city they say, okay, yeah, let's hire more people. Well, hire more people means we need more sergeants, more captains, more bosses, more supervisors. And that just creates the opportunity. All government agencies work under that principle. How can I grow my institution so that I can get a better job? Well, and, and here's the flip side of the coin, too, with what, the, what we're facing now in America. And that is there is a segment of people who are acting as if, because I am a victim, your laws don't apply to me. And, and you see this often in, in uh, you know, some of the inner city communities where there's bad blood between them and the police. And, you know, I'm not trying to comment on, on whether, you know, the police deliberately go in there and abuse them. I think the, the police are seen as an occupying force or as an enemy and, and are treated as such. But um, when you have people who are behaving, and I'll, I'll just use again the example of this girl in Ohio. She's fighting with other with other young people. A police officer pulls up on the scene and this girl just absolutely goes berserk with a kitchen knife yelling, I'm going to stab the F and you know what out of you and and proceeds to, to run at the girl and pin her against the car. Um, I mean, what option does that leave the police officer but to intervene? And in this case, you know, unfortunately, he was dealing with someone actually actively using a deadly weapon. You know, I, I see that as a pretty clear cut case of defending someone's life. Unfortunately, there are those who say, no, no, no. You know, he was in the wrong because it was just a knife fight. And, you know, kids will be kids or, or some variant of that. 
Yeah, and they're just trying to push this narrative that all cops are out there executing people, not not defending themselves. They, that's not a good narrative to have. So you have to have the ex, the the narrative is that really wasn't the case. They were they just asking they're just saying that so that they can execute this individual. Yep i I'm glad that I, I get to pick your uh, your brain as far as uh, you know getting getting the um, various angles of this because right now it's such a highly politicized and emotional uh, topic um, i think it's really hard to have a good productive discussion of this at least in in many corners we've got to take a break gary welch is my guest we'll be back right after this is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Gary Welch is my guest. We have a lot of other interesting things to discuss. Uh, one thing I wanted to share with you, Gary, before we dive into this next topic, we we have kept uh, you know abreast of all the different uh, COVID uh, restrictions, the COVID policies, now vaccination. And I saw an article. This was from, let me see if I can get the person's name right here, Sinead Murphy. It's called The Capture of Goodness. And what it refers to is how goodness has been uh, captured by uh, by the state and used as a tool to get people to do what the political class wants them to do. And here's the phrase that, that shows this. It's, it's a statement that was li- issued by the leaders of 23 countries, including the UK, France, and Germany, on the matter of pandemic preparedness. This is the key phrase. Nobody is safe until everyone is safe. And the idea here is that, you know, all the things we've done before, we kept our distance, we put on masks, we stayed away from each other, we didn't go to work, all of these things. Being good, you know, to other people was was one of the ways that these things were sold. Social distancing, wear your mask, that's the good thing to do. But now it's being extended to something where nobody is safe until we're all safe and and that good, I think, implies if you don't get the vaccination, well, you can't really be a good person. And if you're not safely vaccinated, then nobody is safe. That seems a little manipulative to me. Talk me off the cliff, if you would. Well, why would we ever want the state to establish morality of what is good? That, good, that good state point. definition of what is good I don't think there should be the they should be the ones that are determining that and then saying, well, you should need to do what we tell you because we know what is good for you and what is good in particular. I, I have a lot of problems with them just saying we know what's good for you, but I have even more problems in saying we know what is good and righteous from our point of view, because I've never seen anything in government where they followed principles of what I would classify as good morals. Yeah, it just it just struck me as, you know, we've wondered when is this all going to lift? When are we going to finally resume some degree of normality? And I think that's part of the answer right there. You know, if if you've allowed government to determine what is normal and what isn't, guess what? It's never going to go back to at least what you remember is normal. It's going to be it's going to be whatever those in power at the moment say is acceptable. 
And I watched a press conference earlier this morning, you know, with uh, with uh, Dr. Fauci, among others, you know, from the CDC. And, you know, the, the, the idea was, well, we have some great news, everyone. Now, if you're fully vaccinated, you can go without your mask outdoors. I'm like, <laughs> and, and are there people who are actually waiting, like breathlessly holding their, their pearls? And, you know, do, are they going to tell us we can? What's next? You know, that we can celebrate the 4th of July with a hot dog? Because I seem to remember that being a promise here a few weeks ago. Well, they've already established that, yes, they can. I mean, th- this whole issue of, of, of with the mass, especially as long as they protracted it out, they, they are now just basically piling on what they've established and getting us used to that. Okay, we will tell you now when it's okay for you to take off the mask. We will tell you when it's okay to get back together. We will tell you when it's okay to have your families together again. This whole thing that we control your lives and that assumption on their part that they control our lives. I think the dangerous part about that is that assumption. They really believe that they have that power. Whether or not they really do, their assumption that they have and they're going off, that means We've never, you know, disabused them of that and said, uh, wait a second. No, you don't have that ability to tell us whether or not we can take off the mask. We have it. We're going to do it. Yeah, I, it's it's something I would rather take control of myself. Now, you had also pointed out uh, that there there's some concern or some question over uh, one of the vaccines that uh, there was a batch that was tainted. I wasn't aware of the backstory here, but. Um, tell me about uh, somebody made a very, uh, very timely sale of some stocks of that company uh, before the news came out about the tainted batches. So this actually has a lot of components to it, and it's it's a very fascinating look at the whole vaccination process in a COVID environment. Normally, when we're doing vaccines, there are these procedures and processes that they are worked with that are very established. They start very early with it and take it through. It's about a year-long process that they use. Now, supposedly, they were trying to get this faster, although I really look at it. I thought, you know what? For all the things that they did and all the, the exceptions that they made, I really don't see these vaccines, vaccines coming out any faster than a normal flu vaccine would. If anything, it might even been later. But one of the things that happened was in order to expedite these vaccinations, they outsourced a lot of it. So you heard of, you know, Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the other vaccine. These companies didn't do it themselves. They actually hired a lot of other companies to assist them in making them. And so Johnson and Johnson hired a company called Emergent to help them with creating more vaccine and to get it out faster. Well, because of the processes, because of the procedures, these guys were hurrying. They were doing a lot of things. The FDA did come in, they did an inspection, and they looked at it and they go, nah, sorry, this stuff, you didn't do the proper procedures, you didn't keep it in the proper temperature, you got to get rid of it. Well, that equaled 15 million doses. That is a significant amount. But here was the funny part. So what happened was they came in, they, 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 they've identified that there's an issue, they got problems with this, and the CEO of Emergence says, Ooh, I better sell stock. This is a good time to sell stock. So he sells $10 million 
of stock when it's at its highest price because everybody's looking at them and saying, oh, these guys are going to be putting out the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's going to be a very popular vaccine because it's a one shot instead of two shots. So their stock was running really, really high. After the news broke on this, it dropped down to the point that he probably would have only been able to sell for half the price that he did had they known it. So he knew this when he, when he sold his stock. He knew that this was coming, and he basically took advantage of it. And so now the socialists are basically taking this and saying, look, this is why we don't trust capitalism. This is why we don't trust corporations and CEOs. They're all greedy pigs, and they'll try to get as much out of us as they could. They'll lie, cheat, and steal. That's just all part of this propaganda. But where I'm going with this is if we are free market people, if we are capitalists, how do we approach this? How do we respond to these socialists that are saying, oh, this is just another example of corporate greed and why we must control them with government? Wow. So I, I'm curious, uh, your take on the on the uh, the vaccines. I know you're not against people getting the vaccine, but what is your take on the, the efforts to kind of ramp up um, compliance with it? I mean, this was one of the central messages of the uh, uh, of the press conference that the president, I'm sorry, not the president, Dr. Fauci and others held today. But it was it was along the lines of, look, if you're over 16, you really need to get this vaccine. And it's important you do this. You know, I mean, come on, there's businesses out there that will give you freebies if you can show them proof of your vaccine. Europe isn't going to let you travel there if you don't have the vaccine. Um, What are your what's your take on that, Gary? Are, Are they are they pushing us pretty hard or pushing us just right? No, they're pushing us hard on that. And I, I'm a, I am opposed to that government enforcement of vaccines. I'm, I'm a believer of, of vaccines in general, and that if the normal procedures and the proper procedures are put in place, the vaccines are safe. So I'm not one of those guys. I do take the attitude that most vaccines are safe. And both me and my family have always been ones for getting vaccinated for the flu bugs and things like that. Never had an issue with it. But in this scenario, I saw an agenda of using vaccines basically to justify the way of getting us back without getting us back and admitting that they're wrong. See, this 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 vaccine whole issue comes in a way of we're seeing the covid fatigue. We're seeing the resistance. We're seeing the breakdown of all these rules and regulations and restrictions we put on them. The vaccine comes in and saves the day, says, well, everybody got vaccinated so we can pull back now. And it gives them their excuse, and then they can do it again. Whereas if they come back and everybody just said, look, you're wrong. It didn't work. You didn't do anything. The vaccinations didn't do it. The herd immunity took over, which is always happens. Then they're in trouble because they can't impose it again. It's kind of fun to watch some of the government officials trying to save face now that now that it's becoming clear, you know, the restrictions are lifting, the numbers are still dropping, the cases are falling. And it's, you know, they're, they're trying to they're trying to find a parade, basically, and jump in front of it and start marching. Oh, yes, yes, this is all for me. You know why? This is exactly what we were suggesting. And anyway, I'm, I'm a cynical guy, Gary, and I get more cynical the more I see, uh, you know, politicians unable to say the words. I don't know. Or I was wrong or heaven forbid. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I won't hold my breath. We've got one more segment to go with Gary Welch. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Gary Welch is my guest. And we're talking about uh, some things that uh, that play well into the discussion of capitalism versus socialism. Gary, let's uh, let's pursue it from there. So, you know, we talked about the actual incident, but this is part of a much larger picture that I think is really where the discussion where I want to take the discussion. And that is, how do we react to these things? So these things happen all the time. We hear story after story after story about CEOs that are manipulating the system or doing things that they're not supposed to or taking advantage of others. And the socialists use that as an excuse for getting more government involved. But here's the problem. We, te- we always do this solar, op- you know, our polar opposite. We, we actually have to do and take the exact opposite and say, well, no, you know, these CEOs are not greedy. Corporations are not bad because we don't want them to have any kind of leg to stand on to push their their agenda. And we know that's a, that's what they're doing. But the reality of it is, and this is what I'm asking, is should we be doing that? Should we have to take that polar opposite and say, no, 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 this is you know rare when we know it's not. This is unique. This has nothing to do with capitalism. I really think that that's hurting us as much as what the socialists are doing. No, I, I would agree. I would agree. Um, tell me this, as, as you look around and you see some of the different policies that, that are being implemented by the, uh, the Biden administration, I mean, they've, they've finished their first 100 days in office, and it sure seems like our, our, our economic ship is being steered right into the rocky shoals at, at full speed. It seems deliberate. I, I can't imagine that. Uh, I, I don't know how, how anybody could conclude that this is not going to uh, put some some serious uh, weight, oppressive weight on the economy, you know, and raise energy prices like we've already seen. And this is, I think, what they're trying to do. They they when you have an attitude that you can control the weather, you can control the climate, that you can control a virus what's controlling the economy to you. Of course you feel like you can do that. We can control everything. I mean, there is, I've talked about this before that they, they are taking on godlike attributes and and personalities and that, yeah, we can, we can manipulate everything and we can make it happen and we can control everything that everything should be under our control. And as we have seen in all of those cases, they really messed it up. And they're doing it this time. And this is kind of where I'm getting to my point. I have always argued that large corporations want a socialist society just as much as a large government does. They're they're in cahoots with these folks. This for them, it is not a situation where we are thinking that these guys are free market and they're capitalists just like we are. They are absolutely not your average small business. Yes, I would absolutely put them into the capitalist free market mentality. But for these large corporations, they benefit much, much more under a socialist large government agenda and a controlled economy that is being controlled by them and their government cronies versus a a true what I would call a true capitalist system 
where we're just letting the free market run it. You know, I'm curious what you think about uh, the recourse that the people have, because right now I don't have a lot of faith in in elections. And that's at the federal level as well as at the state level. Um, It seems like the, the system is pretty prone to manipulation. Having said that. I understand that uh, there have been enough signatures collected in California to possibly recall Governor Gavin Newsom. What are your thoughts on that one? That is an example of that the the tyrannical approach does have consequences. I wish it was was all over the place. Um, you know, New York does not have a recall process, and that that absolutely astounds me. So somebody like Governor Como that we can really attribute thousands of lives that were lost. It was, it's directly to him and his decision to put COVID patients in these, these homes, these senior homes and assisted care centers, that thousands of people have died. And yet there is no recall process for that. Whereas in California, we do have that process and they've gotten enough signatures now to make it happen. They're trying to correct a wrong, and it bothers me that, like, why isn't this all over the place? Every government institution should have a correction process within it so that we can make changes midstream. If somebody's in the middle of their term, it doesn't matter. If they mess up, we should have a people recall, not a government recall scenario where we can remove them. Yeah, it, it'll be curious to see how the media treats this and, in fact, how the political class responds to it as well. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I'd, I'd love to see Gavin Newsom. I'd love to see him removed from office just for the hypocrisy of his lockdown policies. And, you know, he, while he's, you know, at the I forget what it was, the French laundry or whatever, you know, uh, dining with his friends. But I want to see people start pushing back. I think I think the time has come where we need people to stand up and 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 this i i support that peaceful way of removing him from office but i'm, I'm looking at what's happening in, in a lot of different countries germany for instance uh, just saw some video today of a german guy standing in the town square people standing around all socially distanced as he's reading from the the german constitution and it's a pretty terrifying thing. He has to read loud. So, I mean, it's like, rah, 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 you know, really loud, you know, guttural German. But he um, he finishes reading, goes to hop on his bike and four fully armored up riot cops tackle him to the ground and arrest him. One person stepped up for a moment and said, you know, hey, hey, hey. And they you know, immediately sent cops over there to stop him. But there was people standing around clapping. If more of them had simply swarmed over there and peacefully, you know, piled on i think i think they could have avoided the situation but i don't know it's it's very discouraging to see the lockdowns are continuing and intensifying in some places i'm not sure we're out of the woods yet i mean what's your gut feeling on this i do i do feel and this is again going back to wrong think there is a submission culture that is really strong it's very very strong in europe they have pretty much adopted that as a culture that you do submit to authority all the time, every time. And I'm starting to see it here in America that we're, we're accepting this submission culture. Now, I, I've always agreed that in, in humans, you know, as humans, just as human behavior, 
that we always are trying to get along, that, that there's not a lot of us that stand up and stick our heads up and scream and shout and yell and fight back. That just really is not the majority. It's a very small minority that does that. But I do believe there is a difference between that and submission. And then as an Americans generally as a society and as a culture, we have not been a, sub, a, a submissive bunch. Our, our country was founded on non-submission that we just didn't say, well, go ahead, roll over us. We're okay with that. We have, we have always been that, what they call the rugged individualist. Um, but I am starting to see that now we're, we're, we're starting to look at, well, if they say it's okay, I guess we should do it. I'm also starting to see a very clear exodus from some of the states that took the more hardcore approach and, and people fleeing to, to freer climates. And, you know, part of this is I, I've recently been just, well, looking at the real estate situation here in our home state of Utah. I've been in Idaho recently looking at the real estate situation there. There's a lot of people coming out of California and Washington and other states that, that really have strict lockdown uh, policies. You know, Oregon, for example, you know, wanting to make them permanent. And they're, they're voting with their feet, which, you know, creates a solution on the one hand. It creates some uh, complications on the other hand. But I'm happy to see that there are people exercising that volition rather than just sticking around and submitting. And, well, you know, I guess I'll vote smarter next time. You know, they're like, no, screw that. I'm I'm out of here. It's time time to go and and start a life somewhere where I'm not feeling that hot breath of, of the state down the back of my neck at every moment. And that is, uh, I guess that it's a passive way of dealing with it. I, I saw the same reports. There's been reports and they, they divide it into blue states, red states, and that blue states are losing people rapidly and red states are gaining people rapidly. But I do, I actually look at it as more from a strong government control versus a less government control option that that's where people are moving to. But again, I, I, I would prefer that you change the state you're in versus leave it because all you're doing is just leaving a core behind of, of people you don't want there. That'd be a good topic for another day because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not above voting with my feet. But no matter where I am, you know, if circumstances don't permit it, I'm going to do my best to try to influence things in the direction of freedom. Gary Welch, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show.